You're listening to Blissful Prospecting, and today we're talking to Todd Capone, author of best-selling book, The Transparency Sale, about how feelings drive your prospects' decisions. We're in a really cool place right now when it comes to you know, sales training and techniques and tactics and strategies and all this stuff. Because when I started in sales, and it wasn't too long ago, it was in 2008, a lot of the books, especially out there in the content, didn't have a lot of science or psychology or anything else like that to really back up any of the claims. And it was really more of a guru's advice that you were following. So this person was either really, really good at selling themselves, or maybe had a reputation working with a lot of cool companies, but it was really you know, his or her tactics and strategies and do this because it works really well for me. I recently have not been as responsive to that because getting into this industry has showed me that a lot of the advice out there is actually not great. <laughs> so I'm really careful with what I share and making sure that I have either tested it and make it work for myself or someone that we have coached or trained has made it work for them. But that's why I'm really excited to talk to our guest today, Todd Capone, excuse me, because one of the things that he does really well is there's a lot of science and research and psychology woven into the things that he teaches around sales. And if you're listening to this podcast for the first time, my name is Jason Bay, and you're listening to Blissful Prospecting. And my goal here is to really help you think outside the script in your prospecting and use proven tactics and strategies to set more meetings with your ideal clients. And what we're going to talk today uh, to Todd about, and I'm really excited for you to hear this interview, because this is probably one of the few interviews I've done where I've rewinded back and forth and taken so many notes, um, like literally listening to this you know, 45, 50-minute interview it took me about an hour and a half, <laughs> you know, writing down the stuff, and that's all hats off to Todd. So, but anyways... The reason why you should care about what Todd has to say is, one, he's got a really great book called The Transparency Sale, and it's really based on his experience being a seven-time sales executive. So a VP of sales, a chief revenue officer, he's got a lot of great experience, uh, not only being in the companies, but also working with these companies as well. And what we're going to talk about today is a couple of things. So empathy, again, is a really big topic today that is really misunderstood, in my opinion. We're going to get into that. We're also going to talk about how people are wired to resist being sold. And lastly, what we're going to get into is why feelings drive your prospects' decision-making. And there's these six feelings that he's going to talk about. He calls them the six Fs excuse me, that drive our decisions. So I'm really excited to get into that. Make sure to check out the show notes at blissfulprospecting.com slash podcast for a link to his book and some of the other things that he shares today. And without further ado, let's get into the interview. So we've uh, we've only met, of course, just on this call within the last couple of minutes. And uh, what I like about talking to you so far, and I mean this in the best way possible, is it's kind of like talking to my therapist. You know, you're super easy, <laughs> super approachable, and I've seen a bunch of your webinars, and I've always got that impression too. But um, welcome to the show, man. It's good to have you on. It's awesome to be here, man. I've seen, I've been following your content for a while and I uh, have a ton of respect for your approach and what you do. And it's awesome that we're finally connected. So this is cool. Yeah, I appreciate that. So one of the things when I was doing some research on you that I uh, couldn't really find a ton of it that I'm really curious about is you apply a lot of psychology uh, in your approach and in your trainings and your workshops 
when did you start getting interested in this stuff? Were you like a little kid, you know, thinking about this stuff? Like when did, when did your interest first start with the psychology? You know, there's always been something about just the way the brain works. Um, you know, I, I kind of like on a, I guess a vulnerable side. Um, I've got a, a stepdaughter who has had some, um, okay, apparently it's what you call clinical OCD, right? Mm. And that clinical OCD has led to a real hard time with even things like reading and to a certain extent functioning. And so at that point, and this was years ago, um, I started to dig into like how the brain works and where the wiring all comes together and like what causes those types of things. And very quickly, I stumbled on this idea that, all right, a lot of what we see in the brain science community has to do with uh, how we learn, it's like how we absorb content and how we make decisions and what actually drives our behavior. And being a lifelong sales nerd, I just, I looked at that and I was like, wait a second neuroscientists over the last 15 years have made incredible discoveries around how our brains make decisions. Like as salespeople, wouldn't that be awesome to know? (laughs) Of course it would. Right. And so that's where it all started is thinking about, you know, my family and digging in there and then very quickly realizing that so much of what's been discovered is yet to make it into the sales world. And I know there's a few of us that are, are really trying to pull it in and it's become really a passion of mine. No, that's super cool. The one thing that I've been thinking about a lot that I'm curious on your take is I'm starting to see, especially in sales and sort of the whole personal development kind of space, where there's a lot less of I'm the guru, listen to me, like that kind of stuff. And I noticed that more of the content is incorporating science and psychology and that sort of stuff. What's your take on that? Yeah, it's, I mean, I'm seeing more of it because it's so relevant to what we do. I mean, like I said, if, if you could, I mean, right now, when we think about the circumstance that we're in around, you know, obviously this craziness and this uncertain time, I mean, you can literally read the minds of your buyers. Like that becomes really, really valuable to where in an upturn, your buyers could be thinking about a million different things, but in a downturn, it then shrinks to extend our runway on our essentials and our must-haves um, cut costs on those as well, and then reduce our risk. And so I, I think a lot of the brain science becomes really, really relevant, especially in today, because it actually aids us as sellers to make sure that we're not wasting our time and should be aiding buyers to where the messaging that they're receiving becomes more relevant. And then hopefully in the end, if we're truly empathizing with the buyers, we're helping aid them on the buying journey, taking uh, the unnecessary steps and keeping them focused on what's really going to make an impact on their business. So I, I, I have not quite seen what you've seen in terms of, you know, the kind of the shift in content, but man, it's, it's needed. And uh, every time I see it, I get a little tear that rolls down my cheek. So. Yeah, no kidding. Let's uh, you mentioned empathy. Let's, let's start there. Cause that seems to be a really uh, hot topic that people are talking about right now. And uh, I hate to say it, it almost feels like it's turning into a buzzword, even though it, it's not like it is a really important thing. I think people are just over talking about it and really simplifying it. But uh, you mentioned empathy. What's what's empathy? Yeah, I mean, empathy is essentially being able to put yourself into the shoes of the person that you're prospecting into. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, some of the misuse of empathy is, oh, man, I hope things are okay. And I hope you're dealing with this quarantine. Okay. I hope your family's <laughs> saying like that. Okay, cool. That that's, that's not empathy. That's like kind yeah. of 
hearing. Um, you know, empathy is truly understanding that in the buyer's world, things have changed too. They're human beings. You're selling to human beings. Their personal lives have become very similar to yours in that you've probably had to do some things to make sure that, you know, you and the people you love are not exposed to worst case scenario in this thing. And we're also looking at our businesses and the things that we do on a day-to-day basis and go, all right, for me personally, how do I make sure that I can continue to pay the mortgage and pay the car payment and keep food on the table? But in business, it's the exact same thing going on that the businesses are looking at it going, how do we focus on the things that we've got to have, stop spending money on the tray of avocados that we have in the break room and, and the you know, cool ping pong table that we've got and start looking at ways that we can reduce risk. And so empathy starts there. It's just an understanding that these individuals that we're selling to are dealing with very similar challenges right now and being able to make that connection and be able to recognize that in their world, what you're selling right now is not important. And how do you actually help them out through this? And I'll give you one other kind of analogy. Um, one of the things I've seen and heard, and I think we're, we're probably past it at this point, but it was this idea that, um, you know, should we be selling, right? When things are tough, like, should we kind of ease off uh, the accelerator? And the analogy that I suggest and give to people, and hopefully it helps, is if you had a neighbor down the street, that or, or down the hall or whatever that was having some trouble in their life had something going on and you in your heart knew that there was something you could do to help or some kind of tool or resource that would help them what do you do a do you say how oh, you know what they're having trouble i'm just going to leave them alone cuz I, I don't want to be a bother or b do you go hey i've got an idea or a tool or a resource that might be able to help them i feel obligated to at least let them know that I've got this and leave it up to them as to whether or not they want to take advantage of it. Right. Obviously I think most of us, if we really cared about the people that we're trying to help that we choose B, which is if I'm a, you know, I, my last role was chief revenue officer of a fast growing tech company here in Chicago called power reviews. If I was having trouble with something and somebody out there had an idea that would really help me, I would almost be mad if they left me alone, right? Like, please yeah. tell me you've got an idea. I want to hear it. Now I'll leave it up. You know, it's up to me to decide whether it truly is going to help me, but we almost have an obligation to help if we've got something that truly helps. And and that really starts with having a true understanding of what's going on in the shoes, in the chair of the people that we're trying to prospect to. Have you always been empathetic or was this, did something happen where you had to learn? Cause I personally <laughs> went through, I mean, through couples therapy and like seeing a therapist and my marriage is totally okay. You know, we just, Oh, good, uh, good, good. But uh, um, it's just, I found that to be something that someone told me, Hey, Jason, you could have more empathy in the way that you approach like cold emailing and all this other stuff several years back. And I, for the life of me, couldn't really figure it out. And I've been doing sales. It's the only professional job I've had, you know, the last 13 years of my adult life, you know, and I've been pretty successful in selling, but I never really thought about empathy. And I think I had it, but didn't really understand what it was. Did, did something ever click for you or, or have you already always kind of thought that way? No, I, definitely not always. No yeah. doubt about it. Um, you know, I learned in the old school of how you sell, right? Just keep pounding. And yeah. if one sale means you've got five qualified opportunities to get one sale and it takes you 20 conversations to get those five qualified 
and it takes you 200 calls to get to the 20 uh, good conversations, then you make 200 calls. Like that was the way I was brought up. Yep. And what changed for me is a couple of things. Number one is when I first kind of you know, moved up into a VP of sales role. And so I've always been selling, always been on the front lines doing it. And then I moved up and I moved up and then I moved up. And all of a sudden I'm the target, right? That everybody with any kind of sales technology or even marketing technology is a CRO, those sales, marketing, client success, like you name it, they're coming after me. I'm getting 150 emails a day. That was that first job is when I finally, it was just like, wait a second, is this what I've been doing to people? Is it, I've been filling them with emails that are nonsense, that are all about myself and, and not actually um, personalized or relevant or valuable. It was kind of a wake-up call that happened years ago. And then I've made it almost a mission since then to help sellers see what it's like to be on the other end so that they can see that an inbox that's got 150 emails in it and you know, 90% of them start with the words, I wanted to. Like, I wanted to see if you had 15 minutes. I wanted to check in. I wanted to see if you wanted to hear about what the great things were doing. I My name is Jason Bay, in case you didn't right. know. <laughs> exactly. It's just like every single one looks like that. I'm just like, guys, we got to stand out. Like, this is, this is white noise to the per- people that we're selling to. And you can stand out really, really quickly by immediately being personalized and valuable and making that evident in your first 10 words of your emails right? Like that's, that's just one example. And so it, it, to answer your question, it really clicked for me once I got on the other side and saw what I had been doing to people for all this time. No, that's, I, I love that. It's super cool because you know, sometimes you just need to go through something and see it and something just clicks, right? Your perspective changes. You're like, oh, okay. What do you see? Cause you do a lot of training and workshops and all kinds of stuff. What's the biggest challenge that you see sales teams have when it comes to empathy and being more empathetic in their sales process? Well, gosh, there's so much, um, you know, I, 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 there's, there's actually, I mean, there's really, there's three categories that I okay. see all the time, right? It, like the first piece that I think we all need to understand is that we're all wired to resist being sold to, right? Like as human beings, um, when one of the examples I always give is like, I was looking out, my front window and I saw these two people walking up my driveway and they're both really well-dressed and one of them was holding, it was like a clipboard or like Mm. something. And when you see that your brain goes into like, Oh crap, close the drapes, kids get in the basement. Like it's where somebody's coming to sell us. Or when you walk into a department store and they come up and say, Hey, can I help you find something? You just knee jerk say, no, I'm just looking right. We're wired that way that when we feel like we're being, sold to or unduly influenced, our brain goes into, whoa, 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 um, you know, too much. And I'm literally not going to believe what you're telling me or every word that comes through is going to be in a filter until I actually trust you. And so that's the first one is just to have empathy for this idea that think about in your own case where somebody comes up to you and is aggressively selling to you, you're, you kind of like tense up and you're like, dude, take it easy. You know, I, I think we, we need to recognize that when we come on strong, uh, that we think about our own worlds when somebody comes on strong to us, how we feel about that. And we just need to take it easy. So that, that number one, we're wired to resist being influenced, right? Number two that I see a lot is, and this one's deep, so I don't want to go too nerdy on you, but 
we as human beings, we make all of our decisions in the feeling part of our brain uh, with emotions. And, um, you know, we actually kick off a feeling in the limbic, which is in the middle of our brain. And we actually only use the logic to reinforce or justify the feeling decision that we've made. Is that a real quick, uh, cause I've heard you talk about this a lot and I'm like, Oh, I, I, I want to ask this question. Um, cause you hear this a lot. People buy based off emotion, justify with logic. Mm-hmm. So there is some science behind this. And is that, is that like a fight or flight kind of survival thing where it takes too long? If you have to justify with logic, that takes too long to make a decision or like what's, what's going on deeper there and feel free to nerd out, dude. This is, okay. this is cool. one of those yeah. podcasts to do Let, that. Let's do it. So, <laughs> um, so, you know, first of all, there is some um, neuroscience that started with a guy named Antonio Damasio uh, who recognized that there are individuals whose limbic, which is the part that governs the emotion in the middle of the brain, um, that when that has become disconnected or damaged, there are certain individuals that have that that literally can't experience emotion or feeling. It's crazy. Oh, wow. It actually started with Phineas Gage like 120 years ago, who was a railroad worker who was damping down some explosives on the side of a mountain with a, with a pipe uh, as they were laying railroad across the country, and it went off. And I know this is gross, but the pipe literally went through his cheek and out the top of his head and took his limbic with it he survived somehow like afterward, after a couple of months in a coma and everything, this is like 1800s, early 1900s where they didn't really have the medicine back then to really know what was going on. But he came to became a functioning human being again, but couldn't experience emotion, but he also could no longer make decisions, which is really, really crazy. Like couldn't decide to get out of bed in the morning, couldn't decide what clothes to wear, what to eat, like just simple things in life. No decisions could be made, but was still highly analytical and could actually look at data. And, and Damasio found that story and then found some others that had a very similar circumstance and realized that it was the limbic, that emotion and feeling center that was actually kicking off the decisions that we as human beings make. And when it can't, we literally can't make decisions. So that's number one. If we take a step back from that and think about, all right, what influences feelings and emotions? And a lot of that has to do with our upbringing. You know, we, we actually develop biases, right? We see that certainly in politics, but we see it in a lot of things that are based on our upbringing. Um, they're also based on our experiences. So certain experiences that we have in life could influence the way that our, our kind of biases and that feeling and emotion center are already set. And then um, number three, you can also be highly influenced by your peers or people that you really respect. Um, so that could be peers. It could be celebrities, right? It could be, you know, that, it, that could go anywhere. So a, a lot of it starts there. Now, the reason that it's so important is it's not just about fight or flight. Um, we have actually categories of feelings. So feelings are not like hate and love. Feelings are things that actually drive our decisions and they're not just logic. And so part of what I'm saying there is when you lead with ROI, you lead with data, you lead with a NASCAR slide that's got all your logos on it, you're actually polarizing your audience. Meaning if they've come in to listen to you and they're leaning one way or the other, they're going to use the logic to either reinforce their feeling that, hey, Jason here is pretty cool. I love what he's selling me. So I'm in and I'm going to use that data to reinforce it. Or I don't really believe this dude. And when he shares his NASCAR slide, I might look at that and go, you know what? That's a lot of big companies. We're not that big. We're going to get lost. Or 
I don't see a lot of companies in my vertical. Um, so maybe these guys, based on their NASCAR slide that you're so proud of, are, are not great for me. So a lot of what you see with data and logic polarizes us based on the way that we walk in to these, these engagements. And the last thing I'll say about this is when you think about the feelings. So when I say it's not love or hate, I, this is super nerdy, but there's actually six categories of feelings that drive decisions, right? And the first one is feedback, uh, meaning we buy things to be recognized, to be validated, to get feedback from others around how, what a great job we did or, wow, this is a great purchase. Uh, you know, I had a neighbor down the street who's mid-40s who was driving a Toyota Corolla around. And then all of a sudden, I go out to take the garbage out, and he's driving a, a, a white Corvette that's got an orange racing stripe on the side. <laughs> and I'm like, dude, like, where did this come from? What's up? And he's like, well, you know, the Toyota was really dependable, but you know, I'm pulling on the expressway here in Chicago every day, and I needed something with more pickup. And then I went to the Chevy dealer, and it was 0% APR. So I was like, I got to have that one. I'm like, yeah. dude, that's not why you bought a Corvette, right? It was a feeling. It's feedback. It's the recognition, the validation that drives that decision and many decisions that we make in business too. Like we want to buy something so that it makes us look better. You know, we get feedback for really making a great decision. The, the second one is we make decisions based on our ability to forecast, uh, meaning ability to predict what our experience is going to be like with that product or service. It's why 98% of us read reviews before we uh, buy something that we haven't bought before. Um, and why 82% of us go to the negative reviews first, which is crazy, right? But when you're looking at reviews on a website, you probably skip the fives and go right to the negatives because we're wired to try to predict what our experience is going to be like. The third F is freedom meaning we'll never buy anything that takes away our control or our, our autonomy. Um, we're looking for resources or tools that are going to help us maintain control and that freedom. Uh, the, the fourth and fifth kind of go hand in hand, but fourth is family, uh, meaning uh, togetherness. It's uh, part of a pack, part of a group. You know, a lot of people have been spending a bunch of money on Zoom because everybody's doing it. And if everybody's doing it, well, it must work. It must be good, right? So we're kind of mm -hmm. drawn to what everybody's doing. And the, the fifth one there is function, meaning we're also drawn to things that um, are making a difference, where we make purchases that make a difference, um, that are um, but purposeful, right? So if our product or service does something that really helps our customers or our customers' customers, we actually get more engaged in the work we're doing. But if we're buying something that we know is going to make a difference, we're more likely to do it. And then the sixth step is fairness, which we often think, gosh, the price is what matters. Well, the price is one sixth of it. And the fairness means is the juice worth the squeeze? When we're looking to make a decision, one of the feelings we think about is, is the effort and the output of resources and dollars and budget and my team worth what we're going to get on the back end. And so that was kind of a long answer, but that those are the feelings that actually drive decisions. And then we'll use the logic to back up the way that we're feeling. Dude, I love that. I'm going to start calling you Dr. Todd. Uh, <laughs> this is uh, this is freaking awesome. The reason why I wanted to dig into this is, so when you look at prospecting, I always say don't prospect to make a sale, prospect to start a conversation. And a lot of people, this may even start to get a little old school where people are saying, sell the meeting. And I don't necessarily know that that's always the goal, but if the prospect's qualified 
and our goal when we're prospecting is to, is to win a meeting. Let's say we really want a meeting with this person. Are these categories of feelings, is that still going on at the very beginning of this cycle where you're sitting as a you know, VP of sales, let's say, and you're looking at an email or you're listening to a voicemail or a LinkedIn message, and these are just all going on under the, under the hood? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's literally the latter. Uh, one thing I always say is with every interaction, you're either building trust or eroding trust, right? It's never staying the same. And every interaction, when we think about decision-making um, and those six Fs, we as salespeople, like I was brought up that our goal in the sales process is to get the buyer to make one decision, which is to buy from us, right? Well, Unfortunately, they're making literally thousands of micro decisions during the process. Every single time they see your company name, they see an email from you, they see your name on the caller ID, they get a voicemail from you, they see an ad on LinkedIn post. They are developing an impression of you and your organization that is either building trust or eroding trust. And so part of the decision making that goes on is, you know, I'm trying to decide, hey, do I want to pick up the phone when I see your company name on the caller ID? And it's not a logical thing like, oh, I've got 10 minutes remaining and I've got like, this could be very relevant. Like, that's not the way I think about it or we as human beings think about it. Um, and it's part of the reason why a lot of executives don't answer cold calls is that that third one, that freedom is that for me, you know, I had 150 emails a day. I had 30 to 35 meetings per week. I could not guide my day by interruptions. And that's what cold calling is is basically interruptive marketing so unless it's on my schedule it probably isn't going to happen but that was part of the the logic that i used to justify the feeling of i kind of lose control when i pick up the phone i don't know who it is i don't know where it's going to go and the forecast one i can't predict what this person's going to be talking to me about and as a result i'm just going to stick with the thing I'm sure of, which is if I don't answer, I just don't have to deal with it, right? So we're, we're thinking about those elements in every single interaction, and it is those six. So it, it just, it continues to come down to that. So what are some of the things that we should be thinking about? Because we're essentially going along this theme of this science behind buyer behavior, which I think is super relevant. And um, what are, like, if we're prospecting, and we're doing this type of cold outreach. We're sending emails, making phone calls, reaching out on LinkedIn. What are some practical things that we should be thinking about and the language we should be using to take in consideration that the sounds like the person we're reaching out to is going through like thousands of things under the hood subconsciously and like making these micro decisions without even really thinking about it. <laughs> yeah. That's a really long-winded way of asking the question, what should we be thinking about yeah. <laughs> to take so some of this I, stuff into, into corporation? So I want... So step into the world of the CRO for a minute. Mm-hmm. Um, when, when I think about when I was at work, what I oh, care And you were a chief revenue officer. Sorry, I think I said yes. VP of sales earlier. My well, I was VP of sales too. So like I okay. started VP of sales uh, with a uh, tech company called Right Hemisphere like 12 years mm-hmm. ago, which is where I developed my expertise around selling through a downturn because man, that was a big one. And then I kind of moved up. I was on the sales leadership team at Exact Target through their IPO. And then we sold the business to Salesforce for a little under 3 billion, which is a big number. And then went to Power Reviews to rebuild that from the ground up as their, uh, originally their SVP of worldwide sales. And then I moved into the CRO role as we kind of exploded it out. But I just to step into the world of a CRO for a minute, what do you think I care about at work. Like, what are my priorities? Well, 
my priorities, number one is my team. Number two are my clients. Number three are my prospects. And then there's another set that are things like my, my boss, our investors, my board, my peers. Um, you know, it could, and then there's another tier below that that's like partners and agencies, known vendors, like vendors that we already have relationships with that are all in there. If you had, saw the list, number 14 on the list is unknown potential vendors, right? So you're coming at me cold. You are at number 14 on my list of 15. Like fifth, number 15 is everybody else. So start from there and go, all right, um, if this person, and this is like most sales leaders, but most leaders, they, they care about their team, their customers, and their prospects first, right? I looked at my email almost like uh, the instant lottery, you know, like the scratch off lottery that you get it and you know it's probably a loser, but you're going to scratch it because there could be a winner in there. Well, in email, it was exactly the same thing. I'd have 150 emails and I'd sit down on my train on my way home and every day I'd go through them in mass. And what was I doing? I'm looking at the preview. So it's not the subject line that gets the open anymore. It's a preview, like my Gmail, my Outlook, my iPhone, they all have 10 words in it. I'm just scanning there. And if it starts with, I wanted to select all delete, like that's easy because guess what? When you start with, I wanted to, you were at number 14 your note is still about number 14. It's about you, right? So it gets deleted because I, I can't prioritize number 14. Like I've got all these other priorities ahead of you. If your email is very evident at the beginning that it's personalized and valuable to my team, my customers, my prospects, you've got something that you can show me is going to help me with those right out of the gate. I'm, it's going to stand out, first of all. And second of all, it's probably going to get my engagement. So that's the thing. Get rid of the eyes and wheeze from the beginning of the emails, make it personalized and valuable and think about your target and what their priorities are. If it's their team, their customers and their prospects, then give them something that's going to help them with their team, their customers and their prospects. One that I had gotten was a right after I had posted um, SDR roles on my website. So we were going to hire SDRs and uh, we were in Chicago. The next day I get an email from a company saying, hey, Todd, here is a uh, SDR salary study for how much they make in the Chicago market. I was like, wow, that's timely. That's cool. Yeah. I open it up and that's what it is. It literally is. And I was like, wow, that's super helpful because we're about to hire SDRs and I want to make sure that we're paying market rate. Who are these guys, right? There was no sales pitch, nothing at all. They just gave. And they gave to me very timely, personalized and really, really valuable. Two weeks later, quarter ends, I get another email from them. It says, Todd, here is a CRO board template deck that could help you prepare for your board meeting, seeing as you just finished your quarter. I'm like, all right, I'm in love. This yeah. is awesome. And then, then when they called, you bet you're like, I picked up right away because they had made a deposit and built trust with me, showed me that they, they were paying attention. They knew me. The messages that they were sending me were personalized and highly valuable. And I jumped on engaging with them. Now, I don't know if we ended up buying from them. But when we think about it from that mindset, what are the things that we can do that are going to help the buyer be better at what they do, give them value, make them smarter in the next meeting that they walk into? And those deposits are the things that when you actually make the call to make some kind of a withdrawal, there's more likely to be an you know, answered call or an answered email versus just the, I wanted to, I wanted to, this is why we're awesome. And did I mention how awesome we are? Yeah. So it's essentially doing this more you as in the prospect oriented 
you know, type of approach versus this me oriented approach. Yeah. So one, one thing that you talked about was the knowing your priorities. How do you suggest someone figures out what the priorities of their prospects are? If it's, let's say someone that hasn't worked in that type of position before, which I think is probably most of the, most of the time, um, what are some of the best ways you found to really get in the head of the person that you're reaching out to, to figure out like what's important to them? Yeah. I mean, I think I, I've been a huge advocate in something I call extreme firmographic and demographic focus. Mm-hmm. Um, and what that means is organizationally or based on team um, taking the whole team. So as a leader, I would take my team and go, listen, we are just going to focus on this vertical of companies. So they, they, and it might be like at power reviews. It was just retailers and brands. That's it. Like you want to, like, I know uh, healthcare can use reviews and um, travel obviously could be a great review target and hotels and all that, but screw that retailers, brands. So that's number one. And then number two, who is our ultimate target within that? And it's two, it's VPs of e-commerce and then the people that are responsible for basically the product detail pages. That's it. So as an organization, we make that determination, prioritize everybody on it, and then we work with marketing, and marketing's role is to help educate and make every single rep that we had almost develop a mini MBA around VPs of e-commerce or people that run product detail pages for retailers and brands. And then all of a sudden, you're incredibly empathetic because it's your expertise, and every phone call you have with one of those is reinforcing the knowledge that you've built up, and over time, you become an asset to those targets instead of a kind of a get away from me, I'm just looking uh, type salesperson. So the first thing that I would suggest is to establish firmographic and demographic focus within your own territory if it's not something organizationally that's going on, because you will just naturally from talking and targeting those people, you'll start noticing things. You'll start looking at things on you know Twitter and LinkedIn that are appropriate for that. You'll become an expert. And then number two, is um, a couple of companies ago when I was the VP of sales of Right Hemisphere, we were selling to heads of engineering. So what did we do? First thing we did is we grabbed our head of engineering, right? We yeah. sat them, did a lunch and learn and did like five lunch and learns around, you know, number one is like, what are your priorities? What do you care about? What bugs you? Uh, then number two was, let's look at your inbox. Like show us your email inbox and show us which ones of the emails you actually open and which ones you don't right? So you, in every organization, if you're selling to finance, you got finance people in your company. Yep. You're selling to marketing, you got marketing people in your company. You got sales, like it, go find those people in your own organization because they could be an incredible asset to help you understand what priorities are and what stands out from a prospecting perspective. That's super great advice because a lot of the folks, unfortunately, that I talk to, you know, there are reps and they don't have the ability to really have much say over Hey, I'd like to interview one of my customers and, and you know pick their brain around this stuff. And they're not really given a lot of that. So I think that's really, really good. So these six categories of feelings, I mean, we could spend a whole podcast talking about that, <laughs> but I wanted to get back to you. You said there was three things. You said yeah. wired to resist the feeling part of the brain. And then what was that third thing that related ah. to uh, you know lack well, of empathy, essentially? <laughs> well, I mean, the third one is this idea that transparency actually sells better than perfection. And yeah. what that means is that, I mean, there's a reason why 82% of us go to the negative reviews when we're, when a website is acting as the salesperson. 
And what was even more magical about the research study that we did with Northwestern University, it showed that when a product with an average review score of between a 4.2 and a 4.5, and again, this is off across all product categories, some skew higher, some skew lower. When a product review score is between a 4.2 and a 4.5, those products actually sell at a higher conversion rate than any other score, including a 5. And so that's actually what drove me to quit my job and write a book. Like as, as insane as that sounds, is that I'm looking at it going, all right, that's when a website is acting as the salesperson. A 4-2 sells better than a perfect five. Does that apply in human to human or B2B? And why? And so that's when I started to really go crazy on the neuroscience around it and dug into this idea that, yeah, in fact, when we as humans and buyers, when we're buying anything, if we're not able to remember second F forecast, if we're not able to forecast what our experience is going to be like with a product or service to a place where we're confident in what could go well and what could go wrong, we don't buy. It's why Gartner three years ago identified that in a consensus sale, 61% of a consensus buyer's time is spent doing homework beyond the claims of you, your competitors, and your their internal buying teams. So 61% of wow. their time is out checking references, uh, like talking to partners, agencies, back-channeling you with peers, going, if it, you're selling tech, going to g2.com, trustradius.com. They're actually looking at Glassdoor reviews to understand what you're like, as you, like what your organization's culture's like, because we're going to have to deal with you as people. They're doing all that stuff, part because they have a drive, a feeling drive to forecast to where they feel comfortable that they can predict the future. Um, but number two is when, when everything is presented as perfect, um, they, they're driven to go do that homework. But when you as a salesperson actually lead and help do the homework for them, present your products and services as imperfect, right? Meaning here's what could go wrong. Here's the types of companies that where this doesn't quite fit. Here's something that our competitor has that we don't. And if that's going to be important, can you let us know now so we save a bunch of time? It's those types of things that are not only disarming to the buying brain and help create that forecastability, but because of the proliferation of reviews and feedback on everything we do buy and experience now, we've got to lead with them anyway. So that third one is transparency lead or it sells better than perfection. We see it in websites. And when I started applying it in B2B, like literally freaking magic happened. Like sales cycles shrank, win rates went up. We qualified deals in faster. We qualified deals out faster that we have no business winning. And the most fun part is we made it really, really hard on our competitors to compete against us because they, they literally couldn't position against us because we were basically selling on their behalf and vetting that with the customer before they'd even have a chance. So that's, that's a big one. That's what drove me to write the book and what kind of the core concept of the book is. Like, how do you apply that throughout the sales cycle? But I, I, I just know for me too, even when I'm selling my speaking or workshops, I'm leading with, hey, I'm not, I'm not this guy. I'm not this guy. This is what I focus on. And if that's not cool, let's save each other some time. So that's, that's number three. Yeah, it's really disarming and being on the receiving end of that. It's like, you're not making any assumptions about me and right. I wonder if that has to do with this forecasting thing. I see that the freedom aspect, the autonomy, it's like you're giving the person their autonomy to make a decision and letting them, it's like, hey, here's what this is, uh, take it or leave it, you know, kind of thing versus this assumptive old school, always be selling type right. of approach that just doesn't work with prospecting anymore, especially cold calling where it's like, 
no, I'm not interested. I'm busy. Uh, oh, it, well, you know, it would only take a couple minutes of your time, Todd. Uh, I really want to uh, make some time on, on your calendar here. So what do you got going on tomorrow at two? Let's, let's, uh, you know, what's your best email? It's like, whoa, dude, just, you know, come on. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. You know, back in the late nineties, um, I was selling for SAP, you know, the big ERP stuff. Yep. And we literally, um, back then it was before the age of reviews and feedback. It was hard for peers of our buyers to communicate with one another. And as a result, like, we literally had a company policy that the answer is always yes. Right. Like a company, uh, we're going through a big, you know, I, I was selling, I, I did a deal in 1999 that was literally $92 million, right? It was like $24 million in software and the rest was in services. And literally, the answer was always yes, which was insane, right? Now, you can no longer hide your flaws and expect to get away with it. And so organizations that are still holding on to that old school mentality, it doesn't work because of the buying brain, but it also doesn't work because it's really easy to find out where you're lying, right? So we've entered a new era. It's an evolution of sales that just kind of creates this need to just, and and I'll tell you the other piece of this that might really resonate with uh, the people listening is in the B2C world, there's certain uh, retailers that are really, really good at this, right? And like my favorite of all time is Ikea. Ikea, it's a freaking nightmare, right? Like you go in, you find what you're looking for, uh, there's nobody around to help you. So you got to write down the code or take a picture of it with your phone because you're going to the warehouse to pull a one-ton box onto a cart that doesn't have brakes, then lift it into the back of your hatchback, jamming it in Tetris style, driving home with an injury. And then when you get home, you open the box, hoping that you left all the fun back of the store, but it's actually worse. You've got 150 parts and no words on the work instructions. And you end up F-bombing your way through the assembly. And at the end, you get this little endorphin rush about like, man, that's freaking cool. I want to go buy the end tables for this bedroom set, right? There's a reason why Ikea is the number one furniture retailer in the world for eight straight years. It's because they don't hide who they are. As a matter of fact, they embrace it. They say, hey, we're not going to be good at this stuff. So we can be great at giving you modern Scandinavian design furniture that you didn't pay much for. And if somebody walks in and says, hey, listen, I need a salesperson to help feng shui my living room and I need this furniture delivered and you know assembled and all that, they'd go, all right, cool. There's a room and board down the street. There's a Macy's, there's a crate and barrel. They've got great furniture that's all assembled. I would suggest you go there. And I think all of us can learn something from that in our own businesses to understand what are we not great at? What are... Like there's things that we've had to give up to be great at our core. Embrace that. That's what we did at Power Reviews is we were going to try to be the greatest at ratings and reviews for retailers and brands. If you came in as something else, we were going to tell you that. If you wanted some add-on or some big holistic solution, we were going to tell you that. And they, like that's not us. That's somebody else. And it really was endearing and helped us differentiate not only in our technology, clearly, but differentiate in the relationships and the trust and the sales approach that we were taking to these clients. You probably had a lot lower churn, I would imagine too, because you're only taking in people that are really good fit for the product. Yeah. And because you're uh, transparent upfront about what could go wrong, when those things go wrong, you were given a lot more latitude too. So yeah, you were able to set it up that, Hey, like sometimes the technology doesn't work. It's like everything. Like my, I've got an iPhone that I love, but sometimes it crashes. Right. And so, you know, if you didn't know that going in, you'd be super angry and calling support every time your phone crashed. But if the rep set it up at the beginning and was just like, hey, sometimes it crashes, here's what you do. 
you know, call us or just hit this button on it, like re- do a full reset or, you know, go into settings and do an update and it goes away. You'd just be like, oh, that, that dude helped me. He's like, I get it. Cool. I can totally do this. And, and I think that's just the way we need to think about it in our, all of our organizations is when you set up what could go wrong, but what's great about you and what's your focus, expectations are set so that when things happen, you're given a lot more latitude. And as a result, renewals go up, engagement goes up referrals go up as a result and hopefully upsells go up along with it. Love it. So this forecast piece, essentially the prospect being able to, they, their need to be able to see a future version of themselves, like improving somewhat. Yep. Is this from a prospecting standpoint, sort of work in the same way that if I see a weight loss commercial and it's some dude with an eight pack and I'm like, I've never even had a six pack, let alone a four pack before. Yeah. And just, you know, turn in the channel. Is that same sort of thing going on? Like, cause when we, I notice a lot of people that we work with at first when they're prospect, it's like, they're making all of these crazy claims about all these brilliant companies they work with and all this. Stuff. And is it like a too good to be true type of thing that's going on with the prospect? Oh, exactly. Oh, exactly. Yeah. And I think we, you know, we, as human beings, we all know that perfection really doesn't exist. Right. And yeah. part of that is a feeling that's been established through our upbringing, our experiences and the experiences of our peers. Right. We, like, we know that perfect doesn't exist. And when you see a product that's got nothing but perfect five-star reviews, you likely leave and go do some more homework. Cause you're like, that can't be possible. Right. And so when we think about it that way, the too good to be true is absolutely the case that when we temper it, we're able to build a connection. We're able to disarm that limbic filter that says, remember that first one that I shared around resistance to influence. When we lead with our flaws and embrace transparency, what happens is we immediately disarm that filter that says, this dude's trying to sell me. And then when we do deliver where our value is afterwards, it resonates because we've built trust and it resonates because we've disarmed that kind of limbic filter that is stuck in our brains that keeps us from being influenced. Is there any psychology around neediness where when a salesperson is too needy or when people are too needy in general, there's that repulsion you almost have? Is there any psychology in that also around neediness? Um, I don't, that's a really good question. I, I have not read much about that. Um, I think if we're, we're overly pursued, uh, then I'll give you the one piece of brain science around it that I think might resonate. Um, it's, it's the concept of tribes. I think Seth Godin has talked about that a little bit, but we are more likely to be drawn to where all the cool kids are, right? So there's two things to think about. Number one is, you know, imagine that you are walking down the street with a buddy and you're hungry and there's a restaurant on the left and a restaurant on the right. And you don't have your phones, you're not reading Yelp or anything, but you're like, the restaurant on the left looks like there's some activity around it, right? You see some people in the windows, you see some people in front, but the one on the right looks kind of empty. Like there's nobody in there. I I don't really see anybody in the window. Like which one are you drawn to? You're probably drawn to the one on the left, right? Because the fact that there's people there um, means that there must be something good about it. Now, what I see selling salespeople do incorrectly here is oftentimes uh, one funny example is uh, they sent me a Calendly link, right, with their calendar, which I think, first of all, is great. Remove friction from the appointment setting process. If you've got a calendaring technology, that actually made it super easy for me when I did decide. Mm-hmm. But what was funny is one of them I opened literally had every single day for <laughs> six weeks open and every single time except lunch. 
on their calendar uh, available. Like the dude's got to eat, right? Yeah. Um, so I, I almost felt like, man, I, this, this dude's lonely. Like I, I feel bad for him, but subconsciously it's making me think, you know what? Nobody wants to talk to this guy. It would be like going to yeah. you know, call it. You got a heart problem. You call your, your, uh, the doctor, the heart doctor and the doctor's like, Hey, yeah. When do you want to come in? I got nothing going on. You'd yeah. be like, dude, you must suck. Right. Yeah. <laughs> you know, versus the guy that's just like, well, I'm booked. I've got this, you know, all this stuff packed. And, um, so, there is a desperate quality that comes across when you appear to be overly available and overly aggressive in terms of being needy uh, because it drives this feeling that, wow, there's a desperation there versus they already have a draw and I just want to be a part of what the cool kids are doing. So my advice is whenever you're asking for an appointment, if you're doing it verbally, do it like you just you did a, a few minutes ago, which is be specific about date and time. So suggest one day at a time, like, hey, Jason, I've got Tuesday at uh, 10 o'clock open or Wednesday at two, either one of those work for you. And when they say no, then you're talking about when you're going to meet instead of whether you're going to meet versus yeah. like the, the guy that says, hey, just pick a time next week. I will move anything to make this work. And he's like, all right, apparently nobody wants to talk to you, yeah. right? So, I mean, that, that's an impression. But then on your Calendly, if you've got a completely open uh, calendar, if it's HubSpot or whatever, I would suggest blocking out times on it that you yep. know that you're at your best. Like I know that there's certain times of the day where I'm high energy that I want to be having my most important calls. And so if I had an open calendar, I would just be blocking off all times except for those times where I'm optimized so that my most important prospecting calls are happening in those times. And those are the ones that my customers can select. It also makes, you know, creates the impression that you're more in demand, which not quite transparent, but it's actually optimizing for your your availability and your your top performance, which is going to be better for them anyway. Yeah, yeah. I think the other thing too is around availability. Uh, you know, people think that I need to drop everything I'm doing to pick up the phone because this person's this prospect I tried cold calling is calling me back, and it's it's okay to get back to an email in thirty minutes, an hour. You know what I mean? Like, uh, I think it's good to. Be responsive, but you can be too responsive. And it also creates this weird power dynamic when you actually end up talking to the person where it's like you're a salesperson and they are an executive and it's not a peer-to-peer. Yeah, kind of that's, dynamic. A, that's a really good point. I mean, the, the way that I've looked at it is there is some science around how fast you respond to a lead, right? Mm-hmm. And when you just going back to empathy, uh, let's say that I'm interested in what you're selling. So I go to your website and I fill out a lead form. When I'm filling out the lead form, I must be pretty interested, right? Like, why would I do that? Why would I open? I've got to be interested. So my interest level is like a nine. Mm -hmm. And then if you take two days to get back to me, my interest level is probably down to a five because other priorities have happened or maybe I've seen other options. There's science around the first person that responds is wins more often than the, the, the second person, right? So let's say it's a couple of days and now my interest level is a five. The other suggestion that I often give is, you know, to look at your sales process and and have that empathy in mind that if you're requiring the buyer or the prospect to meet certain gates uh, before you're willing to share information, whether it's pricing or demo or anything like that, where you've got to go through your qualification questions, just know that if that person, when you talk to them is now a five, and then you do a bunch of qualification questions that make me feel like, this person's only asking 
So I, A, earn the right, and B, they're going to use these questions against me later. Now my interest level is a two. Yeah. And then you hang up and go, hey, we're going to schedule another time for a demo. I'm just like, Ugh, what the heck? And then I get on the demo and they use none of the qualification to customize the demo. Now I'm a oh, zero. That's even worse, yeah. Right? And so I'm a, just an advocate for, have empathy for that, that excitement level that that individual had when they called you back or they filled out a lead form because there was a reason they must have done it and give them, like be a giver at that point. Just like educate them, give them what they need to be able to forecast what their experience is going to be like. And if you were targeting them, then you know they're qualified, right? If you've identified the firmographics and demographics of the individuals you want to go after and they're one of them, ask later. Get them excited, get them jazzed up, give, 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 so that when you want to make that withdrawal, which is, hey, I've got a couple of questions I want to ask to just make sure that we're on the right track here. You've already made that deposit. You can make the withdrawal. I I almost feel like, you know, teach, be a giver, and then do the qualification later, but give them what they want while their excitement level is high so that you continue to maximize and maintain that excitement level because all the extra steps and all the hoops you make them run through are eroding that to the point where they either go with the status quo, go with a competitor, or guess what? You never hear from them again and they, they go silent on you. Yeah. We always say teach, don't take. Exactly. Uh, That's a great way to put it. That's awesome. Um, Well, dude, this has been a blast. I got a couple quick questions here before you take off. So I always like to ask people about their favorite prospecting play. So if you were going after, you know, a big logo and they didn't know who you were or hadn't read your book or anything, how would you go about getting their attention and and getting a meeting with them? Yeah, I am. My mantra is just give, give, give. Um, in every single interaction that I have with the client. And so it's about building a relationship and giving them tools and resources and just giving my stuff away. Um, and so the more I do of that, that it, it becomes not about me. Like I'm not sending them a case study. Like I, a case study is self-serving, but it's just like, hey, here's an article I wrote about you know, how to shift your strategy in a downturn. Thought it might be helpful. There's three bullets here that you could probably take this afternoon and apply to your strategy, or you know maybe send them a book or or something like that, and just continue to give. I might give for weeks, uh, and then when I go engage and ask for something, I'm much more likely to get a um, you know kind of a response to that. So be a giver. That like even so, I'll give you another example, and this is not really an outbound strategy, but. When my clients, like sometimes people that I'm prospecting into, I get some excitement level and then all of a sudden they go quiet. Well, when they go quiet, I don't send them a note saying, hey, I haven't heard from you in a while because that's about me. Instead, I go right back to my outbound strategy. Just like, hey, here's an article on, you know, uh, feeling-centered leadership around how to drive engagement while your employees go remote. Given the circumstances, thought this could be helpful to you. Nine times out of 10, they get right back to me when I do that. And they're just like, oh, dude, thanks for this. This is really helpful. I know I was supposed to get back to you. Here's what's going on. So just always think in that giving mindset and make deposits always with your prospects because then when you go to ask, you're more likely to get something in return. So find your uh, resources, whether it's blog posts, articles, uh, whether it's stats, data that are going to help your buyer be smarter at their job, even if in certain cases, it's got nothing to do with you. Make it hard to say no. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'm like, I just want to say yes to Todd right now. <laughs> <laughs> um, before you take off and we'll, we'll have your book linked up in the show notes because I've 
I've read the book and I've heard you talk about it a ton of times on the on a podcast, and it's definitely a must-have for sure. So we'll link up Thank to that. Um, what else should people check out though? Where do you want them to go? Well, um, you know, website is transparencysale.com. I do have a blog on there where I post a bunch of my nonsense um, and they, they do get pretty brainy. But uh, you can certainly follow me on LinkedIn. Um, if you decide to connect on LinkedIn, just let me know where I, where you found me. Like that's that, that's a big one for me. Um, like I, I just not only to know uh, that this was worthwhile, but that there's a connection there. Mm-hmm. Like we said earlier, get rid of the eyes and we's, be personalized and valuable in your outreach. And that includes LinkedIn. You've got an incredible opportunity to dialogue with somebody on a one-to-one basis. Take advantage of it. And when you're reaching out to me, do the same thing. Tell me you heard me here or wherever. Make it personalized. I, I accept 100% of those. And I would love to uh, be connected to your, your group here. So thank you again for having me on. That was a really fun interview. Again, I took so many notes on this, but one of the big things that he talked about that really stuck out to me, and and I never really thought about it in this simple of a way, and it's the top three things that executives care about. And it's their team, their customers, and their prospects. And if you're not prospecting and leading with language that relates to their team, their customers, or their prospects, and you're doing that literally in the very first sentence out of your mouth in a cold call, or you know, the first couple sentences in a cold email, you're not going to grab their attention because you're going to be talking about something that is very, very low on their priority list. So think about that when you're sending a cold email. Are you going to help them do something better with their team, their customers, or their prospects? Thank you for tuning in. One thing I'd really appreciate is if you liked this podcast, please leave an honest review on iTunes so we can continue getting on more great guests like Todd. And you can do that by simply searching for Blissful Prospecting on iTunes or going to blissfulprospecting.com slash iTunes. I got a direct link for you there. Leave a short, honest review of what you thought, and we'll talk to you soon.